Last Sunday, I got to stand up here and, and mention that uh, many of us have been praying for Margie Kamen, who had spent about two weeks in a coma and had uh, woken up uh, just before, oh gosh, I think it was a week ago Thursday she came out of that coma. Yesterday, I got to talk with Margie on the phone, and her voice is rough and raspy, but her sense of humor was there. Said she's got some gaps in trying to put together all the pieces of what's happened over the last few weeks. Um, but she had also listened or watched a, a portion of last Sunday's service when we talked about her. So I thought we would take it up a notch. I wonder if you would all just shout out, Hi, Margie, we're praying for you. Okay? One, two, three. Hi, Margie, we're praying for you. And I know that Margie's family is probably going to take a phone or something and allow her to watch this. She's got a long way to go, but she is climbing back. The words she said to me yesterday in our, in our short call that we were able to have was, I know that this is a miracle and we're in the middle of a miracle. Isn't that awesome? Okay, our scripture passage this morning is from John chapter 4. We're continuing on in our Oh, How I Love Jesus series, and this is John 4, verses 46 to 54. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was still living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for giving us reminders that you use all kinds of people to do amazing things. Thank you for using Paul and Cheryl in the way that we just saw in this video through a Facebook Live prayer time night after night. And thank you for allowing that to become a source of encouragement to others, as well as a vehicle for ministry for the Fiala family. Thank you, Lord, that you have plans to use all of us. We sometimes don't think so. We don't think we're worthy. We don't think we're, we're wise enough, strong enough, gifted enough, smart enough, all the kinds of limitations we put up. But you are an amazing God who uses all kinds of people to share faith in the right situation, to be an encouragement along the way. And we pray that you will continue to build up our strength and our faith, take us deeper and deeper into what it means to follow Jesus. None of us will do it perfectly. We will all make mistakes. We will all fail at some point. But as we keep growing, you are making us more like Jesus. And I pray that you will allow us to have the kind of resilient faith that never stops growing, never stops learning. So as we look into your word today, open our eyes and open our hearts, because there's some nugget that you want for each of us to pick up. 
and then give us the wisdom and the heart to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen. Alistair Begg is the Scottish pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, and he's the voice behind the Truth For Life radio broadcasts, and he once made this very memorable comment. An important characteristic of genuine faith is that it doesn't collapse when it is tested. That's an awesome thought. Let me say that again. An important characteristic of genuine faith is that it doesn't collapse when tested. Have you ever had somebody respond to your questions or your pleas for help with a curt reply or with an abrupt response that stopped you in your tracks? I ask that question because the section of Scripture that we just read and that we're going to focus on turns on a comment from Jesus that at first seems rude or off-putting until we realize that Jesus was testing the faith of a man who was standing before him asking for help. How he responds in that moment of testing offers us some insights into how Jesus relates to us and to our needs today. For the past few Sundays, we've been in this series that we're calling, Oh, How I Love Jesus, based on the chorus from that old hymn that we used to sing in the churches that some of us grew up in years ago. And in this series, we've been looking at snapshots of people who are moved to express great appreciation and love toward Jesus. And we're asking, what made Jesus attractive to them then? What makes Jesus so attractive today, generation after generation? And what causes people to move toward deep devotion to Jesus? This morning's topic is from desperate to devoted. And we see one particular man who moves from this state of absolute desperation toward becoming so devoted to Jesus that his entire family begins to believe in Jesus. So good morning. Thank you for taking the time to be part of this gathering at North River Church today. Whether you are here in the room or you're watching us online, you're in the right place if you long to understand more about the heart of Jesus. Thank you for those of you who are connecting in your homes or your living room or your office or wherever you have chosen to watch this morning. North River is not just a gathering of already convinced Christians. From the first day when we launched North River Church more than 31 years ago, we began trying to connect with the questions that people ask as they are moving back toward faith in Jesus. And every week we were trying to create a safe place where you can ponder the dangerous questions that Jesus asks of us. The questions are not always easy. They're not always comfortable. But that is where we encounter truths that can change your life and my life for the better. Here's the question behind this morning's message. What do we learn from Jesus and this royal official whose son was dying? I'd like to point out to you four observations in this from desperate to devoted theme. Here's the first. Jesus knows that some of us will keep pushing for more miracles and that that's all we're concerned with. Verse 48 is an interesting reply from Jesus. He responds kind of curtly, even harshly to this man's plea that Jesus would come to his house, which is 20 miles away, in order to heal his son. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. That's John 4, 48. Now, at first glance, this seems like one of Jesus' harshest statements, like he has very poor bedside manner for a healer or for a physician of the soul. This man has just made a long journey, 
to the village of Cana when he heard that Jesus was back in the region. His son was sick and dying, so he came to plead his case to Jesus that Jesus would come to his home and heal his son. Normally, if you were a parent and your, son, your child is sick or dying, you would probably call the doctor or you would call 911. And likely, an emergency vehicle would show up and take your child to the hospital. But that kind of medical care, the kind that we have today in the Boston area that is so great, so strong, was not available in a village like Cana 2,000 years ago. And the word was out that Jesus could do miraculous things to help people. Here in his gospel, John, the apostle, specifically mentions the village of Cana because it's the place where Jesus had turned water to wine, and John had written about that just two chapters ago in this gospel. There in chapter 2, he, he wrote about this marvelous event that took place at a wedding, and so he assumes that now in chapter 4, the readers remember. That had been the very first miraculous sign Jesus had done, and it revealed Jesus as the master of quality who can change ordinary things like water into something that is even greater, something of a greater value, a greater worth, like the best wine at a wedding celebration. Since that visit to Cana, Jesus had also traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So John notes in chapter 2 that while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. In other words, John is telling us that even though he didn't record the specific miraculous events, there are a whole lot of miraculous things that Jesus did as signs that pointed to his divinity and to his authority while he was in Jerusalem, and it created a huge buzz. They weren't the focus of what John wanted to write about. It just appears as a little byline. But now here in chapter 4, he's reminding us that many of the people from Galilee had gone to Jerusalem for that, that religious festival, and they had now come back, and they were talking about all these stories. They were talking about what they had seen, and it raised the expectations, and it raised the anticipation of what might happen when Jesus came back. There are two specific responses to those Jerusalem miracles. The first is that those who are fixated on signs and wonders just kept asking for more. In other words, there are people who are kind of miracle seekers. that they, They'll never get enough. They just have to have more and more and more. And if the miracles stop, they walk away and the entertainment's over and they're gone. But then there was this legitimately desperate man seeking help that John wants us to see in this snapshot of the gospel. For the moment, let's focus on the miracle seekers. Jesus consistently resisted the perpetual miracle seekers. John's conviction was that Jesus performed miraculous signs in order to reveal features of his divine nature so that people would believe that he is the Son of God and the Savior and move deeper into faith. But in Nazareth and in Jerusalem and in other places, there were some who viewed these miracles with an addictive fascination. They just wanted more and more and demanded that Jesus show up and do miracles on the spot as if this was some kind of first century entertainment. John 2.24 says that Jesus would not entrust himself to people like that. A similar thing happens in chapter 6 of this gospel. Just after Jesus feeds 5,000 people from a boy's lunch, and just after he walks on the water across the Sea of Galilee, yet the next day the crowd asks Jesus, what sign will you give us that we may see and believe you? 
I imagine Jesus was probably sitting there saying, duh, really? Didn't, didn't you see what just happened? Weren't you in the crowd and you ate this? Do I have to do something more to convince you? How much would it take? This is why we should be wary of people who are overly fixated on the miraculous today. I'm not interested in naming names or posing any, any well-known figure here today. That's not the point. But there are some teachers and movements today that ignore what Jesus says about miracles. That their time comes and goes. And what Jesus is looking for is our faith in the Savior that the miracles pointed to, not having faith in miracles for the miracle's sake. So Jesus knows that some people will just become fixated on miracles. They'll keep pushing for more and more. Here's the second observation. Jesus doesn't favor the rich and powerful over everybody else. Verse 46 says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The person who comes to Jesus here is identified as a royal official. Some of the older translations called him a nobleman. The word that John uses in the Greek language for the New Testament is very specific. It refers to someone who works directly for the king. In other words, this was a government official who worked for Herod Antipas, one of the three sons of King Herod the Great, whom Rome made rulers of sections of Israel and the Middle Eastern territories. Herod Antipas was allowed by Rome to rule over Galilee, Perea, which is to the east of the Jordan River, and Jerusalem until 39 AD when he was banished to Spain. He was the same Herod who stole his brother's wife, who called for John the Baptist's head, and who would later take part in the trial of Jesus. It is thought that by some that a royal official was possibly, or even likely, a distant relative of the king. There was a whole lot of patronage that went on. So he had wealth, he had status, he had political access. So the original readers of the gospel might have wondered if this guy would get some special treatment from Jesus. And that raises a question. Does Jesus grant special favors for the rich and the powerfully connected? But notice that this man does not come to Jesus playing the political power card. It says he went to him and begged him. He begged Jesus to come and heal his son who was close to death. What I see here is a parent who has tried every option that he knows and has nowhere else to turn. Every parent who has had to deal with a child's illness or with a disease or with a mental illness can relate to this. Several of us in this room have spent some time at some point in your life begging God for a solution or a healing for a child or for some family member. And if you find yourself in a moment like that, you would do just about anything. And then comes that awkward, harsh statement from Jesus. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Why did Jesus say this? And what does this mean? One key word helps us understand more of what Jesus was doing in that moment. In the Greek language, Jesus uses the plural form of the word you. So it shows up in our translation that we used here this morning as you people, unless you people see more. 
That helps us to understand what Jesus was doing. He used the occasion of this man begging to speak to the rest of the crowd that had begun to gather. This is John's way of telling us that even though this one man had come to beg Jesus, a crowd had gathered and was witnessing all this. And Jesus used that occasion to speak to the rest of the group to say, I'm not just here to be a miracle show. I'm not just here to give you more and more and more and to wow you. I'm here to point you in the direction of turning toward God. So Jesus was not rebuking this hurting father. He was speaking to the miracle seekers in the crowd who closed in, always demanding more. The spectators who were ooing and aahing over Jesus' next miraculous sign. But delivering that harsh rebuke at this moment nevertheless tested this royal official. That leads to the third observation. Jesus has the right to test my faith. I want you to say that with me. Jesus has the right to test my faith. Now, that's a dangerous statement. But when you look through the whole of the Scriptures, you find that God does this from time to time. In the Old Testament, we have an entire book called Job about how God tested the most righteous man who was walking on the face of the earth. And it's not like God tests everybody's life in the same way that he tests Job. But what God was trying to do was to show the evidence of the strength that was in Job's heart and in his character. And Job actually came shining through that moment. Verse 49, the royal official says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. At that moment, Jesus responds and says, Go, your son will live. And notice what happens next. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. This is subtle, but now we see something amazing from this royal official. We noticed, first of all, that he is identified by his office. He's a nobleman, he's a a royal official, he's a member somehow of the entourage of King Herod. And we're wondering if he expects special treatment. He's begged Jesus because his son is close to death. He wants Jesus to heal his boy. He has endured Jesus' rebuke to the crowd, and he's still standing or kneeling before Jesus, not going anywhere. He has not pulled out the, do you know who I am card. Instead, he has humbled himself before Jesus. And this second time when he speaks, he's not even asking for a miracle or even for healing. Earlier, John had wrote that he was begging Jesus to come and heal his son, But now, after that rebuke to the crowd, he says, very simply, Sir, come down before my child dies. Do you get what he's saying here in this second request? Please make sure you take this in. He is saying, Jesus, just come. My child needs to meet you before he dies. Whoa! He is not saying, my child needs to be healed by you, Jesus. He is saying, my child needs Jesus. There is a huge difference between those two things. Because in the moment that this man took in that rebuke and stayed there before Jesus, there are probably some who began to walk away, feeling like this isn't the Jesus I want to follow. By the way, that's exactly what happens in John chapter 6. When they hear some words from Jesus that are uncomfortable, many of the crowd walk away. causes the disciples even to say, you know, to whom else will we turn Uh, You're the only one that has words of life. And Jesus has said, are you going to walk away too? And this man is still standing there 
with his faith in Jesus and realizes, my son doesn't so much needs to, need to be healed. He needs Jesus in his life. Something happened in the heart and mind of this royal official at that point. He knew kings and people of authority. And he came to beg Jesus to come home with him and to bring his healing power with him. He'd come a long distance because he believed that Jesus could make a difference. But when he heard Jesus talk about how some people need to see repeated miracles and signs or they will never believe, that become, became the moment of testing for him. And he somehow determined that he believed even if the miracles didn't show up. Jeff Streit, a pastor in Indiana, has suggested that this moment of testing was his come-to-Jesus moment. Many of you are familiar with that phrase of somebody having a come-to-Jesus moment. It's more of a secular phrase today. It's often used with having nothing to do, do with Jesus himself. It's akin to an aha moment when some new truth breaks through to your mind. Perhaps he recognized the authority in Jesus' voice. Perhaps he realized in meeting him that Jesus really is the Son of God and like no one else. And now he knew that his son needed a come-to-Jesus moment too. He was reconciled to the thought that just meeting Jesus would be enough, even if his son died. If he could just meet Jesus, that would be enough. The testing of his heart in this most desperate of situations produced a deeper level of faith in this man. Before, he had hope born from a desperation faith. But now, he held on with a faith that trusts no matter the outcome, which is what Jesus was looking for. So when he heard Jesus say the words, go, your son will live, he didn't argue. He didn't plead his case saying, no, 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 you have to come with me to my home. You have to put your hands on the boy in the way that you've healed other people. He didn't plead with Jesus to come. He simply turned and he began moving home. Friends, this is the kind of faith that Jesus longs to see in us today. He doesn't want a shallow faith that is only as good as the memory of miracles lasts. He doesn't want a faith that is solely built on the idea that Jesus can bail me out of trouble and I only call on him in those times. He longs for a trusting faith for, from you and me. The kind of faith that says, I believe because of who you are. Why? Because testing reveals what is real and true and deep and what is on a strong foundation. Here's the idea for this morning. When Jesus takes a person from desperation to devotion, his life-transforming power impacts those who are around us. When he takes us from desperation to a faith that is based on devotion, his life-transforming power continues and others see it and it impacts them too. And here's the fourth discovery that we make this morning. Jesus longs to deepen my faith. Verses 52 and 53. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. On the way home, the official meets his servants. 
is a long distance. Tracked it out. It's about 20 miles over mountainous roads. Capernaum is down at sea level at the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it's below sea level where that is. And Cana is up in the mountains that are in the hills above that city. So it'll be a long, windy, mountainous road. And it took somewhere between a day and a half or so for him to make this trek. So the next day, as he's on his way home, I get the sense this guy had been walking through the night on these dark, dusty roads, just trying to get home to see his son as fast as possible. He meets his servants. And they quickly figure out together that the boy began to get well at the moment when Jesus spoke. It was likely a whole day earlier when he met them to the point where now he puts these details together. As a result, the entire household puts their trust in Jesus. They all knew how desperate this man had been when he left home a couple of days earlier. He'd been desperate to have Jesus come with him, but Jesus had tested him, and in the process, his faith had turned to trust in the word of Jesus. And he acted on Jesus' word, and he turned toward home. And can you imagine the joy that came over him when he met his servants and found out that his son was well? And then can you imagine the even greater joy when he began to ask about the exact moment that his son had taken this turn for the better and realized it was at the moment that Jesus spoke those words? The change in him was so profound that all of them, mom, dad, the boy, the servants, the entire household, began to believe in Jesus. Here are the changes we see in this royal official's faith. He started with a desperate, plea-driven, nowhere-else-to-turn faith. When tested, it became a a trusting Jesus word kind of faith. And now it had blossomed into a life-transforming faith. His desperate, plea-driven faith had led him to take the trek to Cana in search of Jesus. His trust-based faith had led him to know that Jesus is enough. And his life-transforming faith had led his entire family to embrace Jesus too. This is why it is so necessary that you and I keep growing in our faith. We're always on a continuum, moving from wherever we start to becoming more and more like Jesus. None of us is the complete act, not even me, not even close, but we're on this continuum as he is testing us through life and trying to bring out the depth of the faith that is in all of us. And others come to trust Jesus as they see the transforming work of God in us. When Jesus takes a person from desperation to devotion, his life-transforming power impacts those around us. I wonder if you would pray this prayer with me. It's going to show up on your screen if you're watching online or behind me right now. Lord Jesus, I come to you with all the faith I have right now. Test my faith. Deepen my faith, transform who I am for my sake and for those whom I love. Amen. Now, I have news for you. If you pray prayers like that and you mean them, He will test your faith. He will deepen your faith. But here's the best part. He will impact those around you as your faith matures and deepens. We're going to pivot for a moment. And we're going to celebrate the faith of a young lady named Brenna, who is going to get baptized this morning. And Brenna, here's one of the awesome things about uh, being able to be baptized this morning by Pastor Amy, is that 
God is continuing to develop your faith. And none of us knows what great things God is yet to do through you. Amy?